everyone. Hi, Brendan. Hi. So, since you're here to present your book, Hook Point, what is a hook point in your words, and why is it so useful in a so-called three-second world? Yeah, so I'll start by kind of setting the context of the world that we live in, and then sure. go to what a hook point it is and why it's valuable. Is the reality of the situation of the world we live in today is there's now four billion content creators on the planet. That's how many people are on social media. So I see people with their phones out. Everybody has the power now to pull out a phone, click a record button, and post it sure. to the tune of 200 billion messages being sent into the world every day. So you think about that at the beginning of social media when I started in 2005, maybe there's like a million people on social media. Right. Now there's four billion. So now you really have to contextualize your message to stand out, to have any chance of rising above the noise in this new world we find ourselves in. So a hook point is really three core pillars. So number one, it's grabbing attention. And as uh -huh. the title says, is typically on these platforms, we have less than a few seconds to capture the attention before somebody scrolls past. And the minutes people start scrolling past your content, right. it's going to get suppressed in the algorithms and people are going to move on. But it's not just about grabbing attention. We have to hold attention. This is not, we're not talking about clickbait, we're not talking about tricking people, because the systems and also all of us as consumers of content have caught on to that. Sure. So we have to tell an effective story to hold that tension along, long enough to get our point across, which goes to the third core pillar of a hook point, which is monetizing that attention. Right. Now that doesn't mean you're selling with every post, but I've seen this time and time again, you have to have sustainability to your strategy Otherwise, you get burnt out. And I saw this in the earliest stages of like the earliest influencers, the people sure. that had a business foundation where they could spend their time creating content and focus on their craft, survived. Versus the ones that didn't and they had to work all these other jobs, you know, they get burnt out over time. So it's important to have some type of strategy to monetize on that attention that you're grabbing. I see. And why, why the three seconds? Is that the kind of threshold where if people swipe you, you get down, downloaded? Yeah, so we come up with the three seconds. It happened, I don't even know at this point, maybe eight or 10 years ago where it was specifically Facebook is advertisers were getting charged at a one second view and views were getting char or registered at one second and advertisers were up in arms and saying that doesn't prove intent. Right. Because literally your video is just loading in the first second and if people are scrolling past it, then you don't get any chance of getting that context. So in the data that we collect and we see is, we really look at um, this ratio of your reach, your reach to views. So typically what we're looking at is like a 40 to 50% at a minimum. Mm -hmm. And we see that at the three second mark because views are counted at the three seconds. And sure. if you dip below that 40 to 50%, then people are just scrolling past, and that's the first signal to an algorithm that this content is not grabbing attention, so we're going to suppress it in, in favor of other content. Okay. So can you create a, a hook point? And if so, how do you create a hook point? Yeah, so again, uh, we have the three core pillars of a hook point, and the first core pillar is how do we grab attention? So grabbing attention can mean many different things in many different contexts. Right. So our core principles work for social media, obviously, but it works for book titles. It works for 
email subject lines, um, LinkedIn messages. Sure. It can mean many of different things. Even when you meet somebody here at the conference, you have less than a few seconds to really set the stage of what it is. So typically, with a hook point, I'll start with where people go wrong, is typically our subject matter has been covered. Like every subject matter has been talked about. So like for example, um, my first book was on social media marketing. If you type in social media marketing into Google, there's right. billions of results. So that's where I spent years coming up with the hook point for my first book, One Million Followers, How I Built a Massive Social Audience in 30 Days. Right. It was by design because I knew a lot of people were talking about this medium of social media, what it means, but I needed to find a way to grab that attention long enough for them to pay attention to what I have to say. So the biggest thing that you have to focus on is pattern disruption. And I'll give you um, an exercise that I talk about in the Hook Point book um, from my friend Craig Clemens. Uh, you should check him out. He's one of the, probably the top copywriter in the world. Uh -huh. So he founded a company called Golden Hippo, and they've done $2 billion worth of sales through social media ads. But when he started as a copywriter, all of his hooks were getting rejected by his boss. So what he did to get better at hooks is he would find the best hooks in the market and put it into a document. And then he would start changing out their products, their phrases, their words with his own to learn how to construct a hook. So anybody here can look at uh, successful hooks in any industry and start compiling them in a document. It could be thumbnails, it could be headlines, email subject lines, um, you know, captions on a social media post, meme cards, any of those things, and start compiling them and then start playing around with what they've done to be successful and plugging in your words or phrases. So it starts training your brain sure. to think in the way that the top content creators in the world do. To, yeah, to kind of catch that attention. So you were saying hooking the attention, right? And then maintaining uh, the, the, the audience's attention. There's a section in your book or, or one of the chapters there that's called Become President and Save the Planet. Um, and it's all about the art of storytelling. Can you unpack that for us? Yeah, so storytelling is critical in what we call retention. So I mentioned algorithms, and I'm going to demystify. We don't have to get into the technical aspect of it. But there's this big myth out there that the algorithms are suppressing your reach on purpose in order to get you to pay for reach, to boost your post. That's simply not the case. I mean, our team has done 60 billion views and 100 million followers for the projects we've worked on. And we wouldn't have any success, and the top content creators in the world wouldn't have any success if it was all about paying for reach. Sure. So the algorithms really care about retention, because they make money based upon how long people spend consuming content right. and spend on the platforms. So they want content that you can seed to the widest possible audience and grab and hold that attention. So storytelling is a huge proponent of that. Uh, and we use a communication algorithm uh, that basically breaks uh, communication and storytelling down into math. So it's based on over 1.5 million communication assessments done worldwide. Uh -huh. um, Pixar uses it in all of their screenwriting uh, and, and ads. NASA uses it to train their, their space uh, candidates. And what it does is it breaks down the six different ways that people engage with content brands and make decisions whether to watch something, follow an account, buy a product or service. So the largest subset of the population, 30%, connects with your content or your message based upon how it makes them feel. They want an emotional right. connection. 
25%, the second largest subset of the population, is logic-based. So they want facts, information. Does it make sense to them? It's not about emotional connection. It's about the math, the, Behind the, it. the, the making sense, the who, what, when, where, why. The third largest 20% is fun-based. So they want content that's stimulating, exciting, interactive, fun. They like to react to the world around them. 10% is uh, values and opinions based. So they want to know, can I trust you as a content creator? Can I trust your brand? Can I trust your product or service? 10% is reflective based. So the best analogy I can give for that is if you've ever read stories about Albert Einstein, he would stare out in the window for hours on end reflecting on the world. So these mm -hmm. people reflect and take on information and make decisions. And the smallest subset, 5% uh, is action-based. They move quick. They want the bottom line. They want the best. And the, the analogy for that is if you've ever seen Tom Cruise in Mission Impossible, he's not thinking, he's not feeling, he is going. He's jumping off of buildings, hanging off the side of airplanes. So when we're constructing stories, we're thinking about the audience and the different ways that they can potentially perceive our content and making sure that we're contextualizing it and hitting as the mo uh, most of those as possible. So my base is thoughts and logic. So if I'm only communicating from thoughts and logic, I'm potentially alienating up to 75% of my potential audience. And we see a lot of brands leaving a ton of money on the table, like millions of dollars, because they just need to shift their communication slightly. Interesting, because I was going to ask you, if there's six different categories of like types of consumption, can a hook point or can a story kind of cover more than those or all six of them? Is there a way to like weave in all these different types of thinkers and different types of you know, likes or preferences on, on content consumption? Yeah, absolutely. And I can just do a quick analogy. So we, yeah. we got brought in by the largest residential real estate company in the world, Keller Williams. Um, the founder, Gary, brought us in. Uh -huh. And we did deep analysis of how the whole real estate market markets themselves, markets their properties, markets them as agents. Sure. And in our analysis, we saw that 90% of people were following the same formula. They would say, and I'm sure anybody that has rented a house, an apartment, or a house, they've gone through this process, you see an ad that says, well, this house has five bedrooms, four bathrooms, on an acre of land. Book right. of viewing. What is that? That's 25% of the population. That's thoughts and logic. Right. So if I was selling a house using this, I may start by saying, this house has five bedrooms, four bathrooms on an acre of land. And can you imagine yourself in front of this fireplace on Christmas Eve and how good it's going to make you feel opening presents with your family? And did you check out the pool in the backyard? You are going to have the craziest and funnest parties, and all of your neighbors are going to be super jealous. Right. And I firmly believe that this is the best house on the market for you because of the school dis district. But I recommend that you act fast in booking a viewing because this house is not going to be on the market long. So what I did is started with the logic and the facts of what the house was. I started with imagine. I just used one word. And then I go into the feelings of what it's going to feel like to be sitting around this fireplace during the holidays. Right. And then I go to the fun of the pool. Then I go to the values and opinions about I believe that this is the best house because of the school district. And then I you know, end by saying, I think you should act now because this is the best house in the market. So if you notice, I took the same content, the house, right. and just layered in these six different ways subtly. You don't have to go over the top in any different direction. And you also have to be extremely succinct because we're operating in a three-second world, right? So it's like 
Yeah, well, three in. seconds, and I want to make that distinction, three seconds is really grabbing the attention. Sure. But once you stand out and grab attention, the world we live in, you can still hold attention for a long period of time. So you think about like Netflix, for example, as people will binge watch the later Stranger Things over a weekend or right. Squid Games or any of these shows. They'll spend eight to 10 hours in a day or two. Or right. you look at uh, a podcast like a Joe Rogan, people will listen to a two and a half to three hour podcast. It's not that people don't have the capacity to stick around for long periods of time, but you need to be able to grab that attention the first three seconds to have the chance to get them to stick around. Right, right, right. What do you have to say about, you know, analyzing a short form content and drop off times, right? So there's this three second kind of pivot point. Are there other pivot points along the, along the, the path of viewing a short form content? Yeah, so um, some of the platforms, not all of them, offer retention graphs. Mm -hmm. where you can actually look at the retention of where people are falling off and go to the exact part in that video and see where they're falling off so that it gives you a data point to see, oh, this is what caused people to drop off. Got it. So it's a very powerful tool. But uh, what we do uh, as a company today is we are mining publicly available data on social media and we're analyzing the top viral creators. We're analyzing the top viral trends, the top... Um, formats, mm -hmm. but we don't just look at the, the ultra successful ones. We have a research process that's called gold, silver, bronze, where we'll take an account with an influencer that has like 5 million followers, sure. and then we'll, we'll look at their highest performers, which is the gold, mm -hmm. their silver, which is like the median, their average, and then the bronze, which are the underperformers. And what we do is we watch the gold, and they, those videos may be 10, 20 million views, and then we'll create hypotheses of what we think contextually is driving that performance. So we look at over 50 different indicators of how they're telling wow. their story. So it could be like pacing, tonality, number of edits, first three seconds, captions, title cards. And when we're viewing the gold content, we're creating hypotheses of what we think they're doing in their storytelling that's driving that virality. But then we take those hypotheses and see if they show up in the underperformers. Because you could have an influencer with 5 million followers that's generating 20 to 40 million views on certain videos, but like a few hundred thousand or less on other videos. And there's right. obviously a difference there that's causing that discrepancy in performance. So we see, do those hypotheses show up in the underperformers? And if they do, then we know that's not the reason the content's going viral. And we go back to the process until we find these performance drivers that don't show up in the underperformers. Right, 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 right. I mean, with everything you're talking about, it's, it's, um it's reminding me of this comment that I was making off stage with you right before about the fact that really, you know, intuitively you would think that this is sort of an art, right? Creating content, uh, being creative and, you know, appealing more to these subjective uh, qualities, but really it's more of a science. Absolutely. And that's what we've broken it down into a science. We, we have a process and I walked through a part of it with the gold, silver, bronze. It's called viral content engineering. Right, 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 right. And it's really looking at the data and you can clearly see in the data, if you know how to read it, uh -huh. what is driving the performance versus detracting from the performance. Because there is viral formats, there's viral trends out there where there's certain people that are generating tens of millions of views with it, but people are using that exact format or trend that are generating like a thousand views or less. So it's not just, oh, I'm going to use this format or trend and have right. success. It's the nuances of how you're telling that story. Like, and we pay attention not on the content, but on the context, those nuances, pacing, tonality, number of edits, sure. all those things. Because the reality is any content can be made to go viral. 
taxes go viral, real estate goes viral, um, medical, clinical psychology. Right. So it's not, I hear this a lot um, from clients we work with, oh, is this going to work for me because my subject matter is super niche? But it can because there's examples if you know how to contextually tell that story so it's interesting to the widest possible audience. Right. Um, there's a part of your book where you talk about avoiding prison. Um, <laughs> it's a title, one of the chapters of your book there. Um, and it's all about authenticity, trust, and credibility that are really important factors uh, in, in building this content and kind of building your audience, right? Can you, can you tell us more about that? Yeah, just because you have a, an effective hook, and this is where I say it's not about clickbait or tricking people. Right. Like an effective hook can get you into a lot of trouble. Like we were talking backstage about Theranos, the, the blood um, pricking thing that they did right. the Netflix document. That was an amazing hook, but there was no substance to it. It wasn't real. Right. So that got her into a ton of trouble, you know, and she's facing prison time and all of this. So understanding that you're constructing a hook that is authentic to your story, to your brand, and not misleading people into a different direction that is not true or not authentic to the value that you offer. Right, right, right. Interesting. Uh, it almost makes me want to throw a question at you about cancel culture. Uh, you know, authenticity and like maybe going too far with like authentically saying what you think. What, what do you have to say about that? Yeah, I mean, cancel culture provides uh, an interesting landscape for the world today. Right. Uh, I will say that, you know, for example, is is with Facebook. I've been studying Facebook since the earliest stages of it. And uh -huh. over the, the history of Facebook, I can't tell you how many times people say, oh, Facebook's dying. They've made this change. They're destroying the ecosystem. Right. This platform's no good anymore. But it's like a fraction of a fraction of a fraction of a percent voicing that opinion. But the majority of people buy into it. So the real thing is, are you being authentic? Do you, do you feel like you're, you're providing value and it's authentic to your product, your brand voice, right. and things of that nature that leads to that. Now, during the cancel culture uh, age, there was a lot of brands that were trying to tap into uh, messages about diversity, inclusion, and other things to show their support. But oftentimes, it fell flat because as a brand, they had never talked about that before. Right. So it comes off a little inauthentic. I'm not saying that you can't speak about it, but you got to be really careful to make sure that you do have a valuable point of view and it's, it's authentic to the types of communication that you've done in the past so you don't throw a completely different spin on it. For example, is uh, I started in the film industry, is if you go and buy a ticket to a movie theater and you watch the trailer and you think it's a comedy and then you sit down and it's a horror film, you're going to be like, right. what, what just happened here? I feel like I've been, been tricked. Right. Interesting. Um, part of your book is about learning to listen and listening to learn. What do you mean by that? Yeah, so that chapter is really uh, about offline communication uh -huh. and how do you connect with high-profile people, you know, because a lot of people ask me, well, how did you close like an MTV uh, Vice magazine, a Taylor Swift as clients? And it was because I never went into a meeting of, hey, I'm going to pitch this, I'm going to sell this. Right. I would always sit down and just ask as many questions as possible to understand what that person on the other side of the room perceives as their core problem, their core challenge. 
You know, what are they facing? How do they perceive their business? Because that information can then lead me into how I deliver my hook point, how I deliver my stories, versus if you're just going in with a hard pitch and just going into PowerPoint and things, you could be completely missing the point with the person on the other side of the room. I see. And is this sort of learning uh, also applicable directly to the audience? If you're thinking of a campaign or, or hook point, would you like spend time online to observe and listen and learn from there to inform how you're going to create your hook points or retain your audience? Yeah, again, it goes back to our research process where we do, do deep analysis of who's having success and who's not. Uh-huh. And gleaming those nuances of how they're having their success to apply it to our content and strategy. Sure. Um, but I will say a huge mistake for content creators is what they often do, and this was actually um, a lesson I learned in working with Taylor Swift, because she nailed this and understood this, is that social media is a one-to-one -one communication model. Because if you think about social media when we're using it, right. we're sitting on the couch, we're on the bus or the train. We're not sitting in a stadium watching social media together, yet people start off their videos saying, hey, everybody, it's great to connect with you. Who's everybody? Right. And I can remember working with the earliest YouTube influencers in like 2006, 2007. The reason they were so successful is they made you feel like you were their friend, that they were talking directly to you. And there was an inflection point where YouTube influencers start, started to become bigger than traditional movie stars. And it was because of that personal connection that they felt like they knew that person right. deeply. They were letting you into their world. They were letting you into their bedroom talking on webcams and things like that. Mm -hmm. So it's really critically important to understand when you're creating content, you're creating content for one person. You need to build that intimate connection with your storytelling instead of just thinking about the masses. Interesting. And so your experience of working with Taylor Swift was that she really understood that and you were able to create a strategy that was kind of like this one-on-one -on -one conversation, breaking away from sort of more of these um, generic posts, really. Yeah, so Taylor had mastered that. And the, the challenge that, that we helped her with is we kind of started working with her when she was on the inflection point. She uh -huh. wasn't like a global superstar. But she was getting to that point where she couldn't respond to every comment. She couldn't sign every autograph. So we had to find a way to cultivate a community where fans could connect with each other right. to create that one-on-one -on -one experience. And that's mm -hmm. what we worked with her over two years, is to build that community and ecosystem into her official website so that it could still foster that one-on-one -on -one experience. Interesting. Um, you talked about the fact that, um, you know, so it's, it's the hook point, it's then retaining the audience, and then monetizing. So how do you scale once you've got the good ingredients and there's, you know, you're, you're engaging your audience? How do you go from hook to scale? And is there a secret sauce to that? Well, it's everything that we talked about. The beauty of the world that we live in is the algorithms want to be your best friend. Because at the end of the day, you and I are their product. Right. These algorithms aren't like Netflix where they're spending all this money producing original content. So if you apply everything that we're talking about and you learn how to grab and hold attention, the algorithms are going to see your content to millions of people on your own. Right. And is it a challenge? Yes, because you have to learn these nuances of grabbing and holding attention. But I will say that the bar is set very low because so many people, because they can pull out their phone and click record, they're not putting a lot of thought into the storytelling elements. They're not putting a lot of thought 
into how to contextualize their content. Right. So because, yes, there's 4 billion people on these platforms, but most of the people, I would say 99%, are not good at these elements that we're talking about. So if you can just dial those in, you can rise above the noise very quickly. Sure, sure. So since you have clearly like privileged and superior understanding of how these algorithms work, right? You've been helping you know, dozens of clients and stuff. Can you tell us about maybe one of the most challenging projects you worked on and how you managed your way out of that and managed to sort of... Yeah, I would say the, the biggest challenge that we run into in working with a lot of clients is they're still stuck in this paradigm. And I'm talking specifically with organic content. They were taught previous to social media, right. your job as a content creator and marketer is to design a very niche message for a very niche audience. Uh -huh. But as what we talked about with the algorithms, they don't want that. They want content that they can see to the widest possible audience. So your goal as a content creator, as a marketer, is what we call the generalist approach. How can you make your subject matter interesting to anybody uh, that, that may not have any interest in your product or services? Um, so to give you an example, we were working with a uh, client that was a solopreneur that had a leather wall wallet company, and he was a specialist in understanding the nuances of leather materials, right. which is very niche and nuanced. Yeah. But we helped develop a content format where what he would do is he would buy expensive purses or handbags and then deconstruct them and tell you whether it was worth buying based upon how well the craftsmanship was. And he went from zero followers on TikTok, he's almost at 500,000, he's generated over 25 million views. Wow. And that's a very niche thing. So it's, it's really taking that generalist approach to your message, your content, to make anybody interesting. That's the challenge. But once you get over that hump, you'll beat out your competition mm -hmm. nine times out of 10. Okay. And so if you were to sort of um, leave our audience with a couple of takeaways, a few like sort of secret rules to you know, boost their content, what would they be? Well, I think we talked about the generalist approach just now, which is super important. Uh -huh. I think the other thing is to create your content with intent. You know, study what is going viral, what's not going viral, uh, and, and try and dissect those creative nuances to inform your creative decisions. Sure. Because if you're just going to just play the volume game or the frequency game and you're not learning, from content that you're never going to become a better storyteller. Mm -hmm. And um, lastly, because we only have a, a minute and a bit left, but uh, do hook points get old? Do you have to like refresh them? I mean, social media, the cycles and trends on social media are so short-lived. So did a hook point that worked in 2020 like not work anymore now? So there's two distinctions of it. Um, like I'll give you an example of a hook point that was super successful but fell off, and that was Tom's shoes. The one for one, brilliant hook point. One of the best hook points ever devised is you buy a shoes, we'll donate a pair of shoes. It was so successful that other brands started copying it and then diluted right. the value of that. Now I will say with social media, if you dial in a storytelling format, you can ride it for a long period of time. So a good friend of mine, Alex Stempleski, uh, just passed 20 million followers on TikTok and he's the guy that approaches random strangers on the street and offers them professional photo shoots. He's been using that format for like two, two and a half years, but it's because he's so good at telling that story. Right. So once you really get good at telling that story on social media, you can ride that format for a very long period of time. Great. Well, thank you so much, Brendan. Yeah, thanks for having me.
Thanks.